Hello and welcome to episode number 224 of the Nerd Pro Quo podcast. A lot of changes have happened in the past week as far as where the podcast, the website that it's coming from. A lot more changes are going to come with that. Uh, more videos are coming because uh, some time is freed up and uh, a lot of stuff that got put off. Uh, if you listened to last ep last week's episode, you know why a lot of stuff got put off. Uh, so a bunch of that stuff is going to go up this week. couple quick plugs. Uh, next two weeks are going to be crossover episodes, prob most likely. Uh, next week we are going to be doing a little crossover. going to be reposting an episode of uh, ENT Go Home, uh, Phone Home, ENT Phone Home. With Elio Lucero and uh, Tavon, Tavon, some old uh, bar nerd, bartender buddies. They have their podcast. I was a guest on their podcast. So next week's podcast for this podcast is going to be their podcast. I hope that all made sense. It was a little bit garbled, but whatever. As I mentioned last week, this week is going to be a collection of audio of interviews that I did with my dad bunch of years ago so uh these were not recorded with my current audio equipment so the audio quality is a little bit you know up and down there is no transitions really because it's i believe there are about 15 separate little stories but uh you get to hear some stories from my dad so this is uh, essentially a in memoriam for my dad, Richard Martin, who passed uh, at the end of August. So I wanted to post these because uh, I never really got to do a whole episode with him. But we got about 40 minutes of, you know, interviews with him, him telling stories from his childhood. So uh, we're putting those up. That is this week. Next week is going to be a uh, repost of last week's episode from uh, ENT Phone Home. Uh, another per nerd podcast, some little bit of overlap with some stuff. We talk about what if and some other stuff. Also, most likely the following week, or maybe we're going to stick it in as a bonus episode, another crossover episode with our sister podcast, our anime, the anime podcast, uh, Best Boys anime podcast. We are going to be doing Star Wars Visions with that. So, yeah, as always, if you like this podcast if you uh, share it with your friends have your friends share it with their friends let us know you're listening at nerdproquo on twitter nerdproquo at gmail.com at gmail.com those two have not changed uh and uh youtube.com nerdproquo for a bunch of outdoor videos that are going to be going up in the next couple of weeks including <laughs> some gear reviews that i promised to some companies and i still haven't done because personal tragedy so meh in the meantime, episode number 224 of the Nerd Pro Quo podcast. Stay nerdy, y'all, and enjoy hearing my dad. Start with your first most distinct memory. Go. Okay, that's fairly easy. Uh, my earliest memory to which I can assign a date, the date would be December 7th, 1941. Uh, on December 7, 1941, anybody from my generation would remember um, that was the date the Japanese Navy attacked the American uh, base at Pearl Harbor in the Hawaiian Islands. I remember this only because it was announced on the radio, and the main thing I remember is that all the adults who were listening to the radio were very excited. I didn't know why they were excited. This was explained to me later, but it was very interesting to me. Uh, we heard this over an old uh, floor model radio. I think it was a Philco, uh, where I was in the habit of listening to it by sitting on the floor with my ear up against the uh, where the speakers were, the speaker grill. Obviously a radio that's not made anymore. Uh, I did not... What, it wasn't until years later that I fully understood what all this meant for my family, neighbors, and everybody else. But this is the earliest memory to which I can assign a date. 
I don't know what is my earliest memory. Uh, I have some very hazy images in my memory uh, of early years, but I don't know when they were or even where they were. Now, the, the first memory is that, uh, is that already foster family, or is that... Yeah, when I say my family, I'm referring to uh, my foster parents. Uh, their names were uh, Nelson and Marie Fisher. Uh, this was in Rochester, New York, on a little single-family home uh, a couple of blocks from the town line, on the other side of which was farmland and forest. Uh, some of my fondest memories were of the backyard of this house, but also wandering through the woods with my childhood chums. Uh, another early memory, uh, I can't assign a date to this, but it must be pretty close to this uh, Pearl Harbor memory, was standing in the backyard of my house, uh, talking to uh, a young man who became my best friend, on the other side of the fence who also lived in a single-family home. And we had a uh, common type of conversation for somebody of that age. I was either four or maybe five. And who was this? Do you remember the guy's uh, name? Yes, certainly. <laughs> Don't forget any of these guys. Uh, his name was Tony Teresi. Uh, I remember him. I remember his mom, especially because she made the most wonderful spaghetti I ever ate a uh, sauce which I've been trying to recreate for all these uh, 60 some odd years. Anyway, this conversation between myself and Tony went along these lines. My house is better than your house. No, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> no, it's four, not. As a yes, four-year-old conversation. No, it's not. Yes, it is. And this went on. I don't know how long. Uh, this is my first memory of Tony. But uh, in time, we became great pals. I had others, but uh, Tony was the closest, he lived the closest to me, and uh, this was in a neighborhood where, uh, in terms of ethnic makeup, the majority of people were Italian, closely followed by German, and not so closely followed by Irish. And your foster parents were... They were German. German. Yeah, they were, were they German-German, German, or were they... No, not especially German. <laughs> right. Understand that this was during World War II, and nobody was uh, especially eager to, uh, you know, advertise the fact that they were of German extraction. But they had been here for a while, is what I'm asking. They weren't. Like Actually, I think they were born in the United States. I'm okay. not positive about right. this, but I think so. Their name was Fisher. Hmm. Uh, they had a son who was ten years older than me. I was never very close to him. I think the age difference was simply too great to allow for that. I was much closer to all my pals. Okay, do you want to pause it? Yeah, pause it. Okay, so I'll do pause. Go ahead. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, what, as kids, uh, we did other than setting fires. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we, this was during the Second World War, and everybody, every child that I knew was very much uh, affected by the war. There was war imagery in the film and the movies. Uh, there were lots of war movies, but you found uh, various visual references to the war, even in the grocery store. And we were influenced by this. Our favorite, uh, playtime activity was playing war. Uh, Tony and I uh, dug fortifications in the backyard, uh, a fort, uh, foxhole first, and then it really got somewhat elaborate. Uh, this upset both sets of parents uh, greatly because we dug it in the garden there. But hey, it was wartime, you know, you have to make sacrifices during the war. Uh, we sort of made uniforms for ourselves, uh, made a pack, kind of army pack, made out of uh, a paper bag. Now, I thought it was pretty good, very creative, but, you know, as I look back on it, 
it probably didn't look anything like what we intended, but that did not matter. Where were the... Were you just... Because, you know, as far as, like, the lighting fires and stuff like that, I get the feeling that uh, the parents were there, but it was more a time where they kind of just let you go. Yeah. Would that be accurate? Yeah. Unlike uh, your childhood, uh, it was very common, because this was a, a residential area of single-family homes, because... Uh, people basically felt safe, the children felt safe. Uh, we basically ran wild. Uh, all the parents would simply open the door and say, come back uh, either when we call you, if when we were little and didn't go that far, or when we were older, make sure you come back by supper time, and we were told what time that was. But basically we were uh, unsupervised. The older kids would tend to kind of keep an eye on the younger kids, but not very much. Uh, so we got into a lot of mischief. Uh, another favorite activity, almost everybody, <coughs> excuse me, in this uh, neighborhood had fruit trees in their backyards, cherry trees and peach trees especially that I remember. So a favorite activity of ours is when the trees were laden with fruit, was to sneak into the backyards, climb into the trees and steal fruit. Uh, we would steal almost anything. It's not that we needed to, it was an adventure, it was exciting. You know. uh, now, all the kids that I knew, interestingly enough, all went to Catholic school. We all were subject to the morality of the Catholic Church. And you were in Catholic school with them? or? Yes, they were all, with one exception, Louis Delario, all went to the same school, uh, the early grades were mostly in the same classroom together, but uh, we, especially the Italian kids, tended to have a rather uh, irreverent attitude towards religion, and that kind of rubbed off on me. Uh, to give you an example, one of the kids uh, used to take a missile. A missile is a, a book of prayers that's used in the cat main Catholic ceremony that's called the Mass. And this was kind of like a sacred item. And he would sit outside the school or where the kids would pass by, but especially the girls. And as they came close, he would methodically tear pages out of it, which is considered to be very sacrilegious. <laughs> and the girls would go, ah! And some of the boys would go, ah! And we would laugh and laugh. Uh, none of the religious uh, figures, that the priests or the nuns, ever saw this. We were very good at hiding our transgressions from them. Uh, <clears throat> the nuns were the main enemy. Uh, in fact, I'll give you an amusing uh, anecdote about all of that. For a long time, the boys, which meant mostly my friends, we were uh, in sharp disagreement about whether or not nuns were female. <laughs> <laughs> We had no outward proof or manifestation <laughs> that they were female. And we had serious arguments about this. Uh, I don't remember which side I came down on, uh, but they didn't seem to be women. They were they were nuns. There were men, there were women, and then there were nuns. <laughs> it's three distinct categories. Yes. The priests undeniably were, were male. I mean, the, you know, there was no question about that. But this was a time when Catholic nuns wore the kind of religious habit that virtually covered them. It's not exactly a burqer. I mean, their faces weren't covered, but everything else was totally covered, including a veil, which uh, completely covered their head. You couldn't see whether they had any hair or anything at all. You couldn't see whether even they had breasts, because the kind of uh, habit that they wore concealed that, concealed everything. So this is how this great mystery arose about whether or not nuns were female. Uh, th th was that ever resolved in school? <laughs> I think ultimately we realized that they were female, but that was until years later. Uh, I don't remember anybody actually telling us, and we would never have asked anyone a right. question like this. Uh, you said not, simply did not ask questions about sex whatsoever. We learned sex the way uh, I think all kids did back in that era, which is behind the garage. I'm going to pause it one more time okay. just for the sake of, because I wanted to...
Uh, one I really wanted to ask you about is there's one that I distinctly remember, uh, something about lighting an entire forested area on fire okay. by accident. That was when I was a little bit older. Uh, this was with a good pal of mine by the name of Jack Merkel. Uh, Jack and I, we were Boy Scouts. Now, setting the woods on fire is not something Boy Scouts are really supposed to do. Is that recording? Yes. Uh, we were, I don't remember exactly how this happened. We were sort of uh, day camping, meaning we went out into the woods. Uh, we made a fire and cooked some, I think it was hamburgers over a little grill that we constructed out of wood. Uh, the woods caught fire, but mainly because we were a bunch of wise guys and really little juvenile delinquents. I s seem to remember that we were fascinated by fire, so we took some burning embers and we would throw them down on the grass so let it catch fire and then we would stomp it out. After doing this a number of times, uh, well, the little fire got out of hand and we couldn't stomp it out without injuring ourselves. So we uh, beat a hasty retreat. <laughs> you know, when all little kids, when it happens, you run away. Run away, run away. <laughs> uh, as we left the woods, we heard sirens and the fire trucks, and we kind of stood outside uh, on a small road watching the fire trucks put out our fire. And while we were there, we swore to one another that we would never reveal this incident. And throughout our childhood, we never did. We never told anybody about it. I think, however, we were punished in a way because evidently, unbeknownst to us, we had uh, made our little day camp and cookout in an area literally festooned with poison ivy. That was what I was going to ask next. <laughs> and uh, evidently the poison ivy caught fire and we probably not only had touched the poison ivy but had inhaled uh, into our lungs and everything. Both of us had horrible case of poison ivy. Uh, I was in bed for a couple of weeks after that. So, you know, uh, we got our comeuppance, but nobody really knew uh, how that happened. We never told anybody. I'm going to pause one more time. Aside from the ones that you've already mentioned, I wanted to just ask if you had any distinct memories of Catholic school. How long were you in Catholic school? I was in Catholic school from kindergarten through ninth grade. Ninth grade. Do you, does anything, any memories stand out? I mean, aside from the one you already mentioned about the missiles. Well, the main thing I remember in the early years of Catholic school is that I was scared to death of the nuns. The nuns uh, ruled with an iron hand and a, a a hard yardstick. Uh, they had no reluctance about physically hitting you, abusing you, slapping you in the face, slapping you with the yardstick on top of the head, on the hands, you know, wherever. I mean, nowadays this would not be allowed at all. This would be considered child abuse. But back then, it was considered just you know acceptable discipline. So, middle school, I'm guessing, is around when the whole sex thing and the girls thing comes into play. Uh, how is that in Catholic school? Actually, it wasn't in middle school. I don't know what it was, whether there was something in the water or because most of my friends were Italian and I was influenced by them, but I cannot remember a time in my life when I was not interested by girls, interested in girls. I, mean, I think I inherited that from you. Yes. <laughs> When I became an adult and people would talk about, you know, when they first got interested in sex, usually it was when they were adolescents, and I would normally keep my mouth shut because uh, it's my experience simply did not fit in with that of most people. I would say from the first grade on, <laughs> Definitely from the first grade. Uh, sex to us back then, to the boys, was uh, getting a peek at uh, girls' underpants. That, that was it. <laughs> that was the big thing. And since the girls always wore dresses, 
never saw you know girls wearing pants. I mean, long pants. Uh, that was the great goal. It was easy to achieve because in school, uh, one of the things we had to do was uh, squat down by our desk and pick up papers and trash that had fallen on the floor. And so, of course, the girls, whenever they did this, would immediately display their underwear. I don't know if I'm ready yet, or if this is a point to go into my uh, medical career. <laughs> oh, you mean the uh, the doctor? Doctor Dick. Yes. Doctor Dick. Yes. <laughs> we. <laughs> I think we'll pause. <laughs> if you want to give that some more thought. More time. Good. So I did not go to middle school. There was no middle school in Catholic school. You went through the eighth grade, and then uh, if you went to Catholic high school, you just went into high school. You were a freshman in high school, which is what I was. I went to a, for a year, uh, the ninth grade, to a Catholic high school in Rochester called Aquinas Institute. Uh, this was a quite a different experience from the elementary school with the nuns because the teachers in Aquinas were all religious brothers. They were all men. And they had a somewhat different approach from the, uh, to the nuns. The nuns all belonged to a religious order called Sisters of Mercy, which I always thought was ironic, that name, because they had no mercy at all. <laughs> the brothers, on the other hand, they were all Jesuits. Uh, most of them were Jesuits, some were not. And Jesuits uh, were always described to us uh, as the Pope's commandos. I never quite <laughs> understood that. You know, real hard-nosed types. But actually, the Jesuit brothers, I found, as I remember, uh, were very understanding and very, uh, very intelligent men. However, my Catholic education ended at the end of the ninth grade. For the 10th and 11th and the 12th grades, I went to public school in Dallas, Texas, but we should get into that, you know, a little bit later on. That's a different phase of my life. Okay. Cool. Dr. Dick. Dr. Dick, okay. Uh, I don't remember who gave me this name. Uh, it was probably one of the boys, I'm sure. It was not any of the adults. I should mention that uh, in the group of kids that I grew up with, we considered all adults to be the enemy, uh, and we didn't want them prying into anything we were doing. So I think it was one of my friends who gave me the title Dr. Dick. Uh, my medical career, I think, began at a pretty <laughs> early age. I don't remember what exactly. Uh, my patients were all girls. I had no interest in uh, having boys as the patients. And the girls were kind of like a big mystery to us. I wasn't a gynecologist because that part of the female anatomy was mysterious and uh, largely unknown to us. I was more of like a proctologist than uh, a gynecologist. So my examining room, my office, was actually a kind of homemade tent in the backyard, uh, which consisted of a blank, or maybe it was a sheet, draped over the clothesline, and then we would go inside, and another sheet or blanket covering one end to keep prying adult eyes out. So the girls would come in, and I would examine them by pulling their pants down and taking their temperature. Now, in those days, if you went to a doctor's office and you had your temperature taken, they did it anally. Uh, How old were you around? Oh, I was probably around six. <laughs> So, uh, of course, the digital thermometer, which they now stick in, you know, the child's ear, had been invented. Uh, and they didn't put a thermometer in a child's mouth because they might just, you know, chomp down on it. Uh, it was, you know, somewhat catastrophic results. So, uh, you had a, a, a thermometer stuck up your butt, and that's how they took your body temperature. And I guess it worked pretty well. Well, I didn't have a thermometer, so I used a clothespin. Uh, as a thermometer, but uh, I didn't insert it, you know, all the way in. Uh, I just stuck it there, and 
meanwhile talking to my patients, you know, asking them how they felt and so forth and so on. I think my patients felt pretty good. <laughs> I don't know. The, the examinations weren't very long because beyond that, I didn't really know what to do. Uh, were you ever caught doing no. it? No. Okay. No. Um, and uh, how long did this stage in your life last? 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 Uh, not very long. I don't know. It's a little hazy in my mind. Uh, sometimes the examinations were done behind the garage, which was also a kind of uh, area uh, shielded from uh, prying eyes. But uh, it's hard to say, you know, I don't remember exactly when it began and when it ended. Uh, there was not a time in my life that I can recall that I wasn't interested in little girls, and this was true of all of my friends. They, we always heard stories about, uh, you know, you won't get interested in girls until you're a teenager. Well, that wasn't true of us, and I don't really know why we were so hypersexualized. And this was true of the girls, too, as well as the boys. Uh, as I said, I don't know what the cause was. So, so Dr. Dick didn't make it into middle school? No, 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 no. Uh, by then, uh, I was a different person. Right. Uh, I wasn't quite as forward and quite as nervy in middle school. Well, we didn't go to middle school. They didn't have middle school. Uh, I was in elementary school through the eighth grade. Now, by the sixth grade, uh, the relations between the boys and the girls started to get a little more serious. And by the eighth grade, certainly. And then I went to high school. Now, this was a Catholic school, so there wasn't much opportunity in school or you know, on the school grounds to do anything at all with the girls. The nuns were hyper-vigilant. So your, so your middle school wasn't really middle school. It doesn't really stand out in any ways. No, because I said there was no middle school. Um, this was a Catholic school which went from kindergarten through the eighth grade. And then... Right from there, you went to high school. The Catholic high school? I went to a Catholic high school for one year, and then at the end of that, uh, I moved to Texas and then went to a public school there. Was this, uh, okay, I think we're going to pause here. Just because. Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts, okay. Uh, before Boy Scouts, there was Cub Scouts. I don't know if you know what Cub Scouts were. They're for younger boys. And uh, Cub Scouts, they have a thing called a Den Mother, which is sort of like a, a, a mom to replace your mom. And the Cub Scouts, I don't recall any camping. It was mostly craft things like uh, weaving belts or uh, weaving something called boondoggle with these plastic strips. I never understood what the purpose of those were other than just busy work. But after Cub Scouts comes the Boy Scouts after you reach a certain age, and I don't remember what the age was. Uh, I suspect a lot of men have a positive image of their uh, experience with the Boy Scouts when they were young. Mine was a little bit different because the Boy Scout troop I belonged to was perhaps a bit out of the mainstream. Uh, the Scoutmaster was uh, a nice man, a little bit hard. The Assistant Scoutmaster was flamingly gay, and we knew it even though we didn't really know what gay was. Uh, I don't remember any of the boys saying that they were but uh, that was the story. Now, we went camping every summer, but summer camp in this Boy Scout troop was perhaps different from most. There were no organized activities. We went to this park uh, in New York State down near the Pennsylvania border called Allegheny State Park. We set up pup tents. These are small uh, two-man tents. Uh, two boys to a tent, and then we were kind of turned loose while 
the uh, Scoutmaster and uh, the other adults sat around and played cards and drank beer. That was our summer camp. Uh, nearby there was a, uh, a uh, lake where you could go swimming. Uh, there were lots of woods and hills and of course this was a pretty big park so unsupervised it was easy for someone to get lost, especially a young boy, and that's exactly what happened to one. Uh, eventually he turned up uh, unharmed, but I remember there was much to do about that. The other nice feature about the camp is there was a girls camp nearby. I don't think there were Girl Scouts, so they may have been, I don't remember. Uh, we had them uh, as guests one day, and what I remember mostly about them is that almost all of them were really cute. but. Uh, the boys that I grew up with, who were mostly Italian, virtually all girls were cute to us. I don't know, we were uh, hyper-sexualized at an early age, and I don't know what the cause of that was. Uh, maybe it was something in the water we drank, maybe it was the uh, some other factor in the environment. Sometimes I think it had something to do with the war. This was during World War II, but I don't really know. Anyway, uh, I I was definitely not an Eagle Scout. We had no Eagle Scouts in this, uh, <laughs> this troop. Uh, we had a couple who reached first class, a uh, number who were second class. That was the more common rank. And then Tenderfoot. Tenderfoot was what you were when you began. And I remained a Tenderfoot uh, throughout my career in the Boy Scouts, such as it was. We met at the troop was sponsored by the, the Catholic school that we all went to. This is an elementary school run by the Sisters of Mercy at that time. And all the, the teachers in the school were nuns. But they had no uh, direct connection with the troop and what went on in the troop, and just as well. Uh, one of the priests was uh, kind of an advisor and a go-between uh, between the parish, the church, and but that was the Boy Scouts. That was my Boy Scouts. Uh, years, years later, I thought of the Boy Scouts as kind of the American version of Hitler Youth. But that wasn't really true uh, on my troop because there was no discipline whatsoever. Most of us didn't even have uniforms. We had the shirts, the official shirts, uh, the neckerchiefs that went around the neck, and that was it. Uh, we didn't have the pants or shorts or hats or any of that stuff. Uh, merit badges, well, uh, I think I tried for one merit badge but quickly lost interest. And I don't even remember what the subject was. A couple of the, the boys, the older boys, were more serious about all of that, but most of us, which is to say my friends, uh, it was just something to do to horse around. And horsing around was mainly... Was, was this the same kids you... Tony Teresi and all of them in the Boy yeah, Scouts? Okay. Yeah, yeah, all of them. <laughs> uh, we all went to the same school, and uh, you know, we were all involved in the same sort of activities after school and even during school. That was the Boy Scouts. I, I can't think of much more to say about the Scouts. Uh, as I said, my troop and my experience with the Scouts is rather different from what most men describe as their experience mm -hmm. in the Boy Scouts. Okay, hold on. Yep. Girlfriend. Heidi. Believe it or not, that was her name, Heidi. <laughs> uh, I met Heidi this way. Myself and a couple of others who were uh, basically involved in communication. You might want to face this way. Oh. And move closer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was in uh, a unit of the Army of the, the division called Headquarters and Headquarters Company, or an Army parlance, Head and Head. And I was in the uh, communications platoon, which meant radios. Uh, somebody decided that myself and a couple of other guys would go to Bad Tolts. Bad Tolts was really up in the, the Alps. 
Vatolts is where the 10th Special Forces Unit was stationed. They were running some sort of training exercises in the mountains. And what was needed was somebody to set up a radio, a radio relay station up in the mountains, which consisted of an antenna and a radio. And that was basically it. The idea was if the special courses, the Green Beret guys, and nobody calls them that then, uh, needed to contact someone down at their base, they had to do it through our radio. The one occasion that I remember this was necessary was somebody, actually it was a lieutenant, flipped the jeep. How they got a jeep up there, I don't know. There weren't really any roads where those guys were training, but I'm not sure about that. He flipped it and he got killed. And so they had to relay this information down to their headquarters. This was a great time for me because it was the first time, really the only time, in the Army where I was in charge of something. Right. And nobody was in charge of me because the officers and sergeants were all back in uh, Augsburg, Germany. Uh, they weren't there. So there was myself and two other guys, the radio and this antenna, portable antenna, which we erected. And we were there, I don't remember how long, but it was for weeks. It was maybe a hundred yards up a mountain from a restaurant in Inn, which in Germany is called a Gasthaus. And this was a place where we would go down and we would have beer and eat whatever, you know, German food rather than the stuff the army provided us. This is where I met Heidi because the girls from the town of Bad knowing there were soldiers up there, I'm talking about teenage girls, they would climb up the mountain to where we were and fraternize, I guess that's the word, fraternize. <laughs> uh, maybe it was the uniform, maybe it was also the fact that we weren't really uh, any older than they were, Right. you know. We, we weren't like the, the teenage boys they knew in school. We were in the military, we were a little bit older than Heidi, I was immediately attracted to her because she was cute. Uh, and I would take her off to nice little strolls in the woods. And there we would be, what's the word, intimate. <laughs> and this was really my first uh, sexual experience of a serious nature. I'm not counting the times in elementary school. Right. Uh, and in my years in my medical practice as, as Dr. Dick. <laughs> this, right. this was the first serious experiences. Uh, but I love this time, not only because of her, but because, as I said, this is the first time and pretty much the only time where I was really in charge of doing something. I was in charge. I was the boss, and that was great. And I was sorry to see it. And uh, there were a couple things that happened while we were up there. We encountered an elderly woman who was staying at the guest house who had some sort of medical emergency. And getting her down from there was a problem. So I mentioned this to one of the uh, uh, special forces officers, a lieutenant. He said, I think maybe I can help. And he somehow arranged for uh, a helicopter to come up there. Right pick her up and take her down to the local hospital, as long as I didn't tell anybody about it. Right. And I didn't. Uh, that was kind of interesting. But this was an environment that was gorgeous, and it wasn't military, because we were really far from the military. We had no real uh, connection or interaction with the Special Forces guys who were running up and down the mountains playing soldier. Right. We were sitting there radio right. uh, under the antenna, and each of us had a poncho, which we had to connect it together to make a kind of tent in case it rained. I think, I remember it did rain once or twice. 
And it was cold. How long were you there? I don't remember exactly, but it was weeks. Okay. Until this uh, uh, exercise with the Special Forces guys ended, and then we went back to Augsburg. I think I must have been 19 at this point. Right. Uh, photography. It's, I, uh, photography. Uh, Germany was a great place to get cameras, serious cameras, yeah. not uh, little box cameras. And I developed an interest in this. I forget exactly how it began. There was a uh, a club where Musselman went, and they had various services there, and one of which was a photography club, which is I ran. His name was Adolf, and he was German. <laughs> I remember that much. So he uh, he showed me. He took an interest in me. He showed me not only you know the basics of photography, but also how to develop film, how to make prints in the dark room, and so on. This was all in the facility. In Did the you speak German at this time? Or uh, I had picked up some. Right. I wouldn't go so far as to say I, I spoke, spoke it. it. Yeah. Yeah. I understood enough to. Uh, you know, order in a restaurant, order beer, uh, flirt with a uh, toy line. Yeah. And that was about it. To carry on a serious conversation. That was okay. So that's how I got interested in photography. But photography also took me away from the Army. Uh, but the Army discovered that, this interest. And since I didn't really have a regular job, uh, they decided that uh, they would attach me to the public information office for the regiment. The job of the public information office is to supply stories and images for the soldiers' hometown papers. That's the main thing right. they did. And so that's what I did. Uh, and that was nice. I didn't get any extra money for that, but I didn't care because it took me away from uh, my regular volunteered for the Airborne, and that meant going to jump school at Fort Campbell with the 11th Airborne Division. The unit which does not exist anymore. A lot of the uh, things that was associated with don't exist anymore. There are various military units, their history, but anyway, uh, I'll tell you more about that and what happened to the 11th Airborne later. Uh, jump school was hard. But I had gotten in pretty good physical condition in basic training and uh, the second, the advanced military training. Uh, I was in pretty good physical condition. I was 118 pounds when I went in the Army. That was the minimum weight. And I weighed something like 128 pounds when I uh, got to Fort Campbell. And I was pretty strong uh, for me. Jump school was... I don't remember exactly how long. They begin with uh, just physical stuff. Lots of push-ups, running, everything. Then they... Okay, jump school. 34-foot tower. Okay, as I mentioned, uh, this sort of mimics the shot of jumping out of an airplane. Uh, totally counterintuitive experience something you would never willingly do, but something you have to do in this circumstance. Uh, the way this mimics jumping out of an airplane is you're hooked up with the kind of harness you would wear with a parachute, except it's just a harness and it's attached to a cable which runs maybe uh, 50 yards down. idea is you jump out of this tower, uh, there's a kind of drop and then suddenly you're brought short because you've reached the end of uh, the thing that attaches you to this cable. And this sort of mimics the first the free fall and then the shock of the parachute opening. 
and it uh, kind of introduced you to the idea of jumping out into open space. I guess it's uh, probably a good training device. Uh, I didn't have any trouble jumping out of that. In fact, I had no trouble jumping, period. Uh, at some point, I don't remember exactly when, in jump school, we were brought out to uh, an airfield. We suited up, loaded up with a parachute, which includes one on your back, that's the main chute, and then what's called a reserve chute, which is attached to the front, you know, that you open up in case this plugger doesn't open. So, uh, I don't even remember the first jump. <coughs> By then, uh, we were so psyched up to doing this that, and of course, you're not the only one who's jumping, and there's a bunch of people in front of you who are heading quickly to the door of the airplane, it'd be pretty hard for you to stop, change your mind at that point. Uh, they don't push you out of the airplane, you actually have to do it yourself. So I went out, and I remember how wonderful it was. Uh, the shock of the chute opening wasn't nearly as uh, powerful or shocking as uh, the 34-foot tower apparatus. And I remember looking up at the chute and saying, These training jumps were at uh, 1,500 feet. That's not very high. Of course, if you, both chutes failed, you would die yeah. on the ground. But uh, that wasn't on my mind. And landing wasn't so bad. I think we made five jumps in jump school, and then there was a ceremony graduation when we were in our parachute wings put on our uniform. And that was that. That was nice, but the unit that I was attached to was called Service Company. And the reason I got there is because uh, I was able to type, which got me out of Rifle Company. Right. Uh, well, I kind of wanted to be in a rifle company, but anyway, I was in Service Company. But Service Company was full of idiots. The people who ran it were idiots. The guys who were in it were idiots. Volunteers. I should mention that the army at that time, or the military, had a draft. Right. So uh, I would say maybe about half of the men were draftees, and their term of service was only going to be two years. Others, like me, what they call RA, regular army, was for three years. The RA guys were the idiots. The, uh, the draftees were usually a bit older. They were in their 20s. I was 17 years old at this time, and some of the others were not much older than that. The people who ran the company were meatballs, so I I was transferred to another company, a tank, tank company, which was kind of an oxymoron because the military had no way of dropping these tanks by parachutes. Right. They're way too heavy. We're talking about 50 tons. Yeah, tons. yeah. Maybe nowadays they could, but back then, no, there was no way. So why there was a uh, tank company in this airborne unit, I have no idea. I never got an adequate explanation for that. But I was transferred to a tank company. More idiots. Uh, I probably shouldn't name any names, especially the guy who was the company he didn't have much of an interest in what was going on. This was true. Uh, you know, throughout the Army at that time. Doesn't matter, he's probably dead now. <laughs> uh, chances are he is. Okay, I'll mention that. His name was Captain Kuntz. And of course, naturally, we called him Captain Kuntz. Of course you did. Uh, I'm older now, and you know, looking back, I realize that maybe my view of him at that time was kind of uh, skewed by my youth. A little bit more now. Some of the sergeants were truly idiots, and the way the reason I know this is because the army, sometime around then, uh, decided that 
anybody who had been in the military for any period of time, especially since the Korean War, had to pass some kind of IQ test. Okay. Half these old sergeants failed it, and they were discharged. And we how do you, how do you fail at IQ? It's an IQ test. How you do you have to? I call it an IQ test. The Army had some other name for it. Oh. It measured kind of a general level of intelligence. And you had to score certain... Okay, okay. It was bye-bye. We lost at least half of the sergeants, and maybe three-quarters of the older guys from the Korean War. Uh, Those that remained, I wouldn't say they were smart or even honest, but I got to know one or two of them, and I developed a measure of respect for them. But uh, that was later. I was, here's what happened. And this is kind of reminiscent of a scene in the movie From Here to Eternity, a movie I had not seen yet. But I was getting ready to go on pass, uh, weekend pass. I didn't get out of the barracks fast enough because the... Uh, the sergeant in charge of, uh, of this came into the barracks and said, Martin, you're on guard. So I was thinking to myself, fuck this. I'm not going on guard. Uh, I had a pass to go into town. Well, he said, no, you don't have a pass anymore. So he left, you know, fully expecting me to, uh, you know, go on guard duty. Instead, got it in my head, screw this, you know, I'm fed up with the army, I'm going to leave. I managed to get off the post, which was fairly easy, it was more difficult to get on the post than to get off the post. Took a bus into town, and took another bus back to Texas, I don't know why I went to Texas, but, so at this point, I'm AWOL. So, from Colorado to Texas? No, from Colorado to Fort Kentucky. Okay. That's what this was. So from Kentucky to Texas. From Kentucky to Texas. Okay. So I made AWOL, went to Dallas, uh, with some vague intention of heading to Mexico and never coming back. (laughs) Mind you, I'm still 17 years old. (laughs) I don't know shit. Not very bright, I don't think, thinking back. But this was my plan, such as it was. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but I was convinced by somebody who had been my big brother. Big Brother was an organization which Still exists. Yeah, which supposedly is supposed to help uh, boys who are essentially had no fathers. Right. And he was still around. He said, you got to go back. You can't stay. Your plan to go to Mexico, you know, was uh, fantasy. Was this person around when you were in Texas in high school? or? Yes. He was my big brother. Was he, like, separate, live separately? Or? Oh, I didn't, I didn't live with him. Well, no, I mean, clearly, I don't think legally they can do that, but... Uh, he had uh, he was a had some sort of financial job in Dallas, and this was something he did on the side, uh, <coughs> I guess to enhance his uh, business and social standing. Uh, I don't think he had any real interest in uh, the plight of boys with no fathers. But anyway, he had a uh, Sea Scout troop. Now this is miles from the ocean. Right but not so far from a lake called Lake Dallas, totally artificial body of water. And one of his clients had a big cabin cruiser, and this is where we did our, quote, training, unquote, at Sea Scouts. Sea Scouts, that was kind of fun, and going on the boat, that was kind of fun. But anyway, he convinced me to go back, which I did. Uh, I was immediately arrested by the military police, 
put in a stockade and court-martialed. Court-martialed is, uh, well, you saw... Uh, I know, I know what that is. Yeah, yeah. That was a general court-martial, two guys who were accused of murder. I was just accused of uh, absent without leave. Uh, court-martial lasted maybe five minutes. I had a, uh, a lawyer, so-called, said, there's not much I can do for you except to make sure that uh, your rights aren't violated between now and when the trial ends. Well, as I said, the trial lasted five minutes. I was sentenced to six months in the stockade, busted to uh, private, and uh, I was a private first class at that time, and forfeited two-thirds of my pay. So, the stockade. Okay, hold on. For the sake of stockade. Okay, so I was sentenced to six months uh, hard labor, as they call it. Uh, before, when you just arrived there, you go before a uh, medical officer who's supposed to determine your fitness for what the Army calls hard labor. He spent about 10 seconds with me, just looked at me said, you look like you're in pretty good shape, and that was that. Uh, the hard labor, though, just consisted of a certain amount of harassment, but uh, going out on jobs. It wasn't busting rocks, uh, rock pile, or anything like that. The Army wanted you to do more useful things, useful for the Army. So I was to spend six months in the stockade, but I didn't spend six months. I spent two months. At that point, the whole division uh, was transferred to Europe. Okay. And they took everybody with them. Everybody who was in the stockade, and almost everybody in the stockade, uh, that was the only unit that was uh, at Fort Campbell, but almost everybody who was in the stockade was in the 11th Airborne Division. Uh, I, one of the things that struck me about the guys in there was they all had these tattoos I think I told you the story before. These tattoos on their arms said death before dishonor. Yeah. And you had guys in the stockade there for theft, for rape, for everything. Everybody was taken out of the stockade, going back to their units, and then we went to uh, Brooklyn Army Terminal and went to Bremerhaven, Germany. It took about two weeks to get there. Right? Do you have any idea why we all went to Europe? or? We were replacing the 9th Infantry Division, which was coming back. Okay. They'd been there since, I think, the end of the Second World War. This was maybe 19... I don't think when this Probably 1958, early 19... Okay. No, I'm sorry, 56, early 1956. We landed in in Germany, which is on the North Sea, and then by train, as I remember, to... Our post, which was in a city near a city called Augsburg, Germany, which was just north of Munich. We were stationed on a former uh, German army base, which the U.S. Army took over you know, at the end of the war. Uh, and so that's where I spent most of my remaining army time stationed. Augsburg. Actually, it was right near a little town called Gabaden. And there was a field there, and we did our practice parachute jumps there. We would board trucks whenever it was up for you know, a training jump. Go to an air base, and I forgot exactly where the air base was, get on these planes, and then it would fly over the drop zone, which was part of this base in Gabaden. I didn't know it at the time, but I later learned that underneath this drop zone had been a, a, an underground Messerschmitt factory. And the factory was still, I mean, there wasn't anybody down there, but it was still there. They just closed off entrances. Which is what? Messerschmitt? No idea. Oh, 
sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> okay. This was a hot German fighter plane from the Second oh, World okay. War. The way we discovered this, the guys I'm talking about, is one day somebody in his practice jumped. They hit the ground and kept going down. <laughs> they had fallen through, I guess, uh, something which was covering an entrance to uh, this underground factory. And then we discovered that that's what was down there, which was kind of interesting. So, of course, we all wanted to go down and look around. Of course. The, This was kind of a fun time in Germany. Uh, I got promoted to corporal eventually. Uh, got plenty of uh, time on passes, which immediately went into town. Got three-day passes where we go as far as Munich. Got what they call leave, which is like a furlough. One week, one time, ten days, another time. Went to Italy, France, uh, various places. It was while I was in Germany that one day we were called into the barracks to load up. We're going out to the airbase for a jump. Okay, so we went out to the airbase, we got on the plane, but then we were in the aircraft that there had been this big earthquake in Morocco near a city called uh, near the coast and we were going down as a rescue operation part of the rescue operation we were supposed to do one of two things and the plane was loaded up with uh, equipment that could either be unloaded or drop by parachute. It was already rigged for parachute drop. Whether we would land or whether we would drop this stuff and jump with it depended on the, uh, the condition of the airfield where we were going to. Uh, as it turned out, we uh, didn't have to jump. We landed and unloaded the stuff. And what I remember about it is that it was hotter in hell. There. Remember, this is Germany. This is a part of Germany which is never warm. Right. Uh, it's in the Bavarian Alps. So we went from there to North African Desert. This is my first experience with North Africa. It was kind of brief, but uh, and later there would be other experiences. Germany was nice. I enjoyed it. My first serious girlfriend was a young German girl. 16 or 17 years old. Mind you, I'm only, uh, I'm just going on 18, or maybe I'm already 18, but no older than that. Uh, maybe I should tell the story of that. Okay, well, let's stop. There we go. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, Army, this is basic training. Fort Ord, California. As I understand, Fort Ord no longer exists. We used it as an active military base, but at that time, it was the major West Coast training facility for the U.S. Army. Uh, it was part of the shock was having to get up at four o'clock in the morning. I would imagine something I never did prior to that time. I always had a hard time getting up to make it to school at nine o'clock, never mind getting up at four in the morning. But I survived that. Uh, the, it wasn't so bad, it's just that uh, some of the people there who ran the facility, not, I'm not talking about commanding general or anything like that, but the guys who are our training cadre, uh, most of them had come back from Korea more than a few of them were fucked up mentally and emotionally, probably because of that experience. And I not only had difficulty with them, but everybody in my training uh, unit had difficulty with them. 
one of the guys, the craziest one of a cadre, was actually relieved of uh, that assignment. But I managed to get through. Is this something like Christopher Walken in Biloxi Blues, or? Uh, maybe. Uh, I don't know. It was maybe a little bit like him. But uh, the idea of these crazies was to subject us to as much physical and mental abuse as possible in the theory that this would prepare us for combat. Well, that's dubious to say the least. But anyway, uh, I managed to get out of there. Fort Ord had some uh, advantages. It was in California. It was right on the coast. In fact, the, uh, the Blessed Men's Club was across Highway 101 okay. and overlooked uh, the ocean. It was a beautiful location. It was for enlisted men. Is this is around when? Uh, this would have been 1955. Okay. Uh, this club had been donated by one of the previous commanding generals. Kind of unusual. But anyway, that's when I had my first beer, uh, which actually was uh, what we call near beer. 3.2% alcohol. That's what they serve to enlisted men. Officers, of course, they give anything they want. But enlisted men, that's all you got. In was this like a local thing? or? I think it was throughout the Army at that time. No, I mean, like, was it a local beer? Or was it just just the standard beer they give out to all the soldiers? Or? It was Budweiser. Oh, uh, of course it was. hard to describe my first experience with Budweiser. Uh, it went down very easy, and the fact that it was only 3.2% alcohol made it seem like, uh, hey, I could drink this all day and all night, uh, which I proceeded to do, <laughs> and got uh, totally fucked up. But that was, that was eight weeks, the basic training. Basic training. Second eight weeks was what they called advanced infantry training. That, that was in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, which was near Colorado Springs. That was a real hellhole, uh, right in the middle of what they called uh, Rattlesnake Gulch. And it okay. really was, because there were rattlesnakes everywhere. Happily not in the barracks, but when you went outside, especially out on the ranges and elsewhere, there were rattlesnakes. Big fat ones. Uh, there were some crazies there too and again these were all guys who had come back from Korea decided to stay in the army for whatever reason uh, maybe because that was their best option probably they couldn't really get a job on the outside for somebody who was as fucked up as they were but anyway I got through that second eight weeks. In the second eight weeks, I was introduced to all what the Army calls the small, small arms weapons, which includes 45 automatic pistol up to and including a uh, heavy machine gun. Nearing the end of that eight weeks, uh, it came to my attention that everybody who was graduating was going to Korea. And that didn't seem like a, a very good prospect for me, uh, especially in, in light of what these cadre were like. I uh, figured, gee, if I went there, who knows what would happen. So there was one way to get out of it. Well, two ways. One, to a volunteer for officer candidate school. That was not really an option for me. Uh, I might have. The second was to volunteer for airborne. That's what I did. So instead of going to Korea, which all the guys in my training 